Hi everyone, this is the newest Philosophy Exchange podcast today on the topic of valuing nature. My name is Jakob and today I'm joined by Cedar, Franziska and Robin. Welcome guys. Hi. Hi. Glad to be here. So today our topic is valuing nature. Some things in our life or in our world seem to be invaluable or some things that we wouldn't want to put a price on. However, uh, recent years or the last, well, actually the last two centuries have uh, put the light on that if we don't place a value on something, in this case nature, potentially uh, this nature, if it isn't owned by anyone, is effectively up for grabs and can be taken or destroyed uh, by anyone. On the other hand, the question is, if we put a price on nature to stop it, does this mean everything is up for sale and it's just a question of price? So what we want to do in this podcast is first have a short introduction on nature, on what might be understood when we say we value nature. And then we will uh, continue in an economic part. So how would an economic evaluation of nature look like? and what would be the pros and cons of that. And uh, now I'm turning over to Cedar to talk about nature and valuing nature. Hi. Um, so when people engage, uh, when philosophers engage in philosophical discussions, they often define their terms. So we were first going to discuss a little bit about what we mean by nature, um, and then talk a little bit about different ways in which we can value things. Um, so in this discussion, by nature, we will mean uh, non-artificial. So when we talk about something being artificial, it means that it's created by a person. Um, that's uh, from the same word as artifice, right? That's something that's been created by a person. Um, so by nature, we just mean uh, what most people, I think, would imagine nature to be. So trees, mountains, animals, plants, things like that. Um, there is an interesting question about whether or not to include things like rocks uh, or inanimate matter that is non-human created in a discussion such as this, um, because we might think that uh, parts of nature that are animate have interests, um, but it's all harder to think about rocks as having interests. Um, so there are interesting uh, subtleties there that can be discussed. Um, but in general, when we speak about nature, we're going to be talking about what you might, what you would, what most people, I think, think of as nature, which is to say those things that aren't creations of humans. Um, and then as far as valuing goes, uh, there are uh, typically two ways uh, to place a value or, or two ways of thinking about something having a value. Uh, the first way is to think of something as having an intrinsic value, which is to say something being valuable in and of itself um, or having a value that is not dependent on something else. And the second way that we would think about uh, something having a value is that thing having an instrumental value, which is to say having a value uh, that is dependent upon something else or being valuable insofar as it produces some sort of additional value. Um, and one interesting thing about uh, instrumental values is um, there's a question of who that thing is valuable for. So when we're talking about valuing nature in an instrumental sense, uh, typically uh, I would think we would be thinking about uh, the value of nature for humans. Um, but in this discussion, it might also be interesting to discuss 
whether or not uh, nature might have an instrumental value for uh, other parts of nature, um, right? Like animals in a forest uh, have are find the forest itself to be instrumentally valuable, presumably, or other parts of the forest that are not themselves. Um, so I'd like to uh, now ask the other members uh, of this discussion uh, what they think uh, about uh, this uh, division between instrumental and intrinsic values. I think it'd be interesting to look at what uh, what what it means to value nature intrinsically. So as you said, uh, instrumental value is so like it has a value um, because it serves a certain end for me. So um, I would, for example, value nature in the sense that I don't know during the week uh, I go to work, and then during the weekend uh, I'm, I'm I'm right next to the Black Forest here, so I can go out of the city. I can go for a hike, and then I value nature because it gives me a, a certain uh, recreational benefit, or like it allows me to I don't know to steam off or anything. Um, but I'd also be interested to hear in uh, your examples. Jakob, what you just said reminds me a lot of the ecosystems approach that has cropped up a little bit in sustainability science, where, you know, we regard these values that come from nature um, as services that we as humans consume, if you want to think about it in that economic framework. Um, and and I, I kind of like this approach because it is wider than just regarding nature as instrumental to being input factors into, into our economic production from which we then draw prosperity. But it, it can also be an aesthetic service that nature provides for humans and is instrumental, it's instrumentally valuable for us in that sense then. It can have a regulating service. Um, the climate certainly has a regulating service for all of our lives um, and, and determines how we you know, feel in our every, everyday lives. So yeah, I, I think it's very important to kind of keep this uh, instrumental approach very wide in order to bring as many um, aesthetic and economic uh, categories under that. Um, that. That makes me think about um, the difference between what philosophers sometimes uh, call monist uh, way of valuing and pluralist way of valuing. Uh, so in, in the monist um, way of thinking, there is only one way of valuing things. For example, we could say that uh, utilitarianism is a monist um, approach in the sense that in utilitarianism, uh, you always value things through uh, pleasure and pain. But um, in the pluralist view, uh, there's pleasure and pain maybe, but there's also awe or love or um, aesthetic value or different things. That's one thing I was thinking about. And the other thing is, um, I always wonder how you can uh, prove or, or not uh, the existence of uh, an intrinsic value. So that's something I would like to hear you guys on. Yeah, I was I was thinking in, about this in preparation of uh, of this podcast because I was trying to figure out like how do I value nature? And uh, one of the examples was the one I used before. Um, another one is like I don't know trees. Uh, uh, trees and plants provide our oxygen to live as a very uh, very obvious service and i always ended up with this type of like i always say i value because it's aesthetics i value because i need uh, uh, nature to live and so i was trying i was coming up with this one like uh, little well let's call it thought experiment where if for example um as 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 like 
as humans, we could like, I don't know, create this huge space station that's all like created by us and we could build this space station. And in order to build it, we would need to destroy the whole earth uh, and all of nature with it. But then within the space station, we could like, we could create our oxygen for ourselves. We have aesthetics values through like virtual reality. Uh, we have, we have, um, uh, all the food is created by 3d printers. Would we want to go into the space station because the space station provides all the services that nature provides for us? Um, would we be willing to go there or would we say, no, we don't want to build this space station, but rather we want to stay on earth with like providing, having nature provide these services to us. Looks like the, the matrix problem also, no? A little bit, but uh, with a valuing nature twist. I think uh, to butt in, I think that uh, one, one thing that this gets at is it gets at the, the fact that um, in uh, any sort of belief system, there uh, may be uh, irreducible elements that you need uh, somewhere in order to base your beliefs your, 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 to construct your more complicated beliefs on top of. So if you think that nature is intrinsically valuable, that might just be uh, an irreducible element of your belief system. Um, and one way to think about why that might be is because if nature is uh, intrinsically valuable, then that means that it's not uh, reducible to any other sort of value, right? It's like, it's, it's valuable in itself, right? So it kind of is not dependent upon anything else for its value, and thereby it, its value can't be justified by anything else, right? Um, and then if we're talking about instrumental value, the same problem might arise at some point. Because if you follow uh, the line, right, you are valuing nature instrumentally, right? But then you're valuing nature for some other value, right? But then why do you value that nature, that value, right? Or so say, say you value nature because it uh, enables to keep yourself warm, right? Because you can cut down a tree and burn it in your fireplace and then produce heat, right? Um, but then like, why is it valuable for you to be warm, for instance, right? And then maybe it's valuable for you to be warm because you know you want uh, pleasure or you want to stay alive or something like that, right? But then you can ask like, why do you want that, right? And at some point you might get to an irreducible value regardless, something that can't be justified by something else. Um, but maybe other people have thoughts on this. Would, would you think that nature is an irreducible value? Um, so I think that uh, I'm not sure. So if we're talking about instrumental versus intrinsic value, um, I certainly think that nature has instrumental value. That's obvious um, because it provides lots of benefits um, for people, right? Um, but if we also want to say that it has intrinsic value going uh, along these pluralist lines that uh, Robin maybe mentioned, right? Um, then if we want to justify that intrinsic value that we see in nature, um, then I'm not sure uh, that we could uh, justify it and it might just be irreducible but this is just a thought i would be interested to hear what you think that uh entails as a consequence for you know maybe a mandate to protect nature based on its intrinsic value like reads um policy like necessity or advice follows would follow from that. um i would think that uh i mean i i think that um by saying that nature has intrinsic value in this sense i think what i am trying to get at is the idea that uh, nature has a value that is 
independent of the value that it provides for humans um, and that it should be protected as a result of that. Um, and that if that is true, that that would justify uh, policies that protect nature for its own sake, uh, beyond any benefits that humans get from that. So I think that's a very good point. The other one that maybe is related to the question of how we value things is um, that probably if we can't say that we value everything in the same way always, then uh, the economic valuation of nature is uh, a bit more complicated because if there were, uh, say, just a way of valuing things, uh, like, for example, utilitarists think, then maybe the translation uh, to an economic valuation is doable. But maybe if, uh, if, that's, if that's not, not the case, then, uh, then economic valuation is probably, I mean, I think, um, harder. This reminds me of what uh, Sida also said earlier in terms of finding that irreducible value that you can have. And you need something to make different parts of nature comparable if you want to trade them off against each other. And there is probably some trading off to do because we also need to draw from nature as humans in order to survive and to flourish on this planet. So what is it? Um, you know, is it what in economics is understood as welfare and Then again, we could, you know, open an, a whole Pandora's box of what could, what actually entails welfare and what could be understood as such. Is it about um, pleasure? Is it like, how could you even incorporate um, pluralist values there, you know, different ideas, making them comparable and trading them off against each other? Maybe then we, we need to find some sort of minimum consensus on which we all with our pluralist views of what we care about could agree on. Okay, looks like we're uh, already shifting a bit into economic evaluation. And uh, Franziska, you wanted to give us an example of how valuing nature from an economic side might look like so that we can discuss this afterwards. Yes, so I believe 2021 marks a very interesting year for the economics and policy around biodiversity and around valuing nature. Um, it also marks the release of a review recently in the UK called the Desgupta Review on the Economics of Biodiversity, which kind of attempts to be a bit of a paradigm shift um, of, you know, considering value, the value of nature more directly within economics. And by saying that humans uh, do not just draw from nature in terms of resources, but that human societies are embedded in nature. And that means that our prosperity, our flourishing really depends on Uh, being good stewards of the planet and managing the resources so that we can draw from all of these ecosystem services that I uh, mentioned before. So this approach, um, I believe, is rooted in cost-benefit analysis, at least to, to a certain degree, and wants to make the different contributions that nature has to our well-being, um, the, the instrumental value of nature, comparable across situations and across decisions of Uh, economic agents, but also of just everyday citizens uh, by maybe, you know, and, and we go into the concrete examples now by forcing companies to put nature on their balance sheet by pricing certain resources, not only for the prices that they have, um, that they accrue for, you know, cutting off a forest, but also pricing in the opportunity cost of having the services that flow from this forest uh, in terms of regulating the environment in terms of um, providing us with, uh, with aesthetic value and so forth, um, and to 
to make these visible in economic calculations where they have in previous times not been been accounted for. So um, some have hailed this this review really as an attempt to um, change from the current situation where everything is up for grabs to a situation where we really uh, take account of all the good things that nature offers uh, in our economic decision making and reflecting it everywhere, reminding a little bit of you know the approaches that we know from climate change economics is already in putting a price on carbon. We can now also put a price on um, on nature by thinking about the resources that, that we have in terms of natural capital or by um, you know again putting a price on things when when they um, when they are traded and when they are for for sale. So this review has been, yeah, gotten a lot of applause. It has also drawn some criticism, particularly from conserv conservationists who've said that um, it is eventually the, you know, the fulminating end of capitalism and extending the market logic to, to more and more things. I personally think that it's definitely a step in the right direction to um, to account for the value that nature provides uh, in economic decision making and to also force nations maybe to, you know, not just think in terms of GDP, but also to account for the natural capital that they are either safeguarding or exploiting. So I would be really interested to hear your views on that and to maybe take this approach up for discussion. Problem is that there, there are so many, so many things to say. <laughs> I think so. It's quite interesting, um, before we go into like the detailed uh, economic pros and cons, I think it's quite interesting to, so when you say like it's the Descupta review embeds like humans in nature and nature and humans to, to view the whole thing as a whole system, uh, at least the way it's described, um, I mean, the words that you said were like to include the services we get by nature and to actually incorporate these into our balance sheets, into the way we, we measure GDP. Um, it sounds to me, although I'm not sure this is actually meant, that this is mainly focus, focusing on instrumental value of nature because we're including services we gain by nature. Is this is is this a right understanding of how this is meant, or is like some non-instrumental value actually uh, like seeping in there implicitly? I would agree with you there absolutely, um, because in the end, what we do within economics is we we kind of try to trade of different goods against each other in a world with finite resources. And um, certainly this framework is, you know, marked by an anthropocentric worldview more often than, than ever, in, at least as, as we're treating it right now. Um, so we think about what, like you said, what services humans can, can consume from it. And, and I think it's, it's just deeply embedded in, in this idea of we are consuming the services already. It's just that nobody has given them a price yet, which means that everyone is free for exploit, exploiting the commons um, and, and not paying a dime for it and destructing also the environment for future generations who, you know, we might also say have a right to or in all fairness should benefit from um, all of these things that we enjoy about nature today and that contribute to our, our well-being. I think that what Francisca was saying earlier is best um, defense of economic valuation. Uh, if we don't give any economic value to uh, nature, then uh, uh, basically the, the value that is used by everyone is zero. And I, I think that's the point that is also made by the, by the 
the descriptor review. I mean, I would have liked to um, hear you guys um, for that specifically. So I think, Francisca, um, your the, the descriptor defense is basically like one of the first, like the, one of the two sentences I used in my introduction. So they're saying, if I understand you correctly, so if we don't price the nature, it's, it's, it's up for grabs anyway. Like people pollute it, people destroy it. Um, I'm interested. So like once we put it up for sale, effectively, there might be some sanctuaries right now, even though much is being destroyed. There may be some sanctuaries right now because we still have like this nature, this like intrinsic or super value of nature that we might not destroy. So I was thinking earlier of like, so here in, 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 in Freiburg, in, in, I can like, when the city design, like designates a certain area, I can build my house. And if there were a couple of trees, I can chop them down. I destroy some nature. You know, I pay price to the city and that's kind of fine. And then, okay, if we destroy more trees, if we value that in, I might have to pay more because of this. But right now in our current system, we still have about few, but we do have some sanctuaries like um, I'm not sure this is 100% correct example, but I was thinking of um, national parks in the United States. So like, uh, let's say at, in, in Yellowstone National Park, I can't just build a house there by paying a lot of money to the government. Um, some, some, some critical voices might say, yes, you can, but let's, let's assume you can't <laughs> for the moment. Um, right. And if we have this whole like system where we incorporate nature into our um into our like capitalism gdp system um would we then not necessarily also have to put a price on these things that are now sanctuaries and um wouldn't that mean that that also is up for sale in the end for the right amount okay two two quick thoughts on that so first of all i don't think that they're necessarily um you know, that you would necessarily have to scrap the approach of designating areas as national parks or just saying this is so valuable in terms of its aesthetic value, in terms of its, um, you know, may maybe also value from natural history, something like the Yellowstone Park or the Grand Canyon, um, that we just do not touch it, that wouldn't necessarily have to have to stand in competition with the approach of just regulating, regulating, you know, nature that occurs more often or that we find more regularly and that we do not find as special as these maybe um, nature park cases as pricing that. Um, secondly, I believe that there would actually effectively be many more spaces in which we do not interfere if we really take the approach of valuing nature seriously. Um, and I do think that many people criticize this approach on the basis that they do think it will result in an insufficient level of ecosystem protection. Um, however, some studies that economists have done, for example, a team around Simon Dietz, Bruno Lanz, um, also from, from LSE, Simon Dietz, uh, they have found that if we just consider agricultural productivity alone, this might actually justify a moratorium on the expansion of agricultural land. Uh, which I now, you know, from the world that we live in, it sounds like a pretty radical proposal to say we shouldn't expand agricultural land at all anymore. Just make that infeasible. Um, so, you know, if you really do it in an ambitious way, I do think there might be the result of us having many more spaces that are left pristine, that are left um, to grow just by themselves. So I wanted to know, uh, in more concrete terms, what would valuing nature look like? So that was something Francisca already talked about, about a little bit before. 
But I guess that would take the form of a cost-benefit analysis, which basically is a way of trying to measure out the costs and the benefits of a certain projects. To do that, the idea is to, to find out the monetary costs and the monetary benefits of the project, and then to balance them out. The problem with applying that kind of uh, thing to value in nature is that Obviously, you have to find prices or costs uh, for nature that aren't already available. Um, and then if you want to do that, uh, uh, often economists use three, uh, three, te three techniques. The first one is uh, direct valuation or will willingness to pay uh, evaluation, where basically you have to ask people uh, how much they would be they, they would be willing to, uh, to pay to preserve uh, forest, for example, from being cut down. Another way would be um, just uh, what economists uh, call a revealed uh, monetary uh, commensuration. So in that case, they would just look at the choices that people make and try and infer uh, an economic valuation from that choice. For example, um, in the case of the forest again, they would probably try and see how much people are uh, willing to travel, for example, uh, to see the forest and, uh, and equate uh, that traveling time plus all that you have to pay to travel to the forest uh, as the, the, their willingness to pay. Um, or they would try and do an implicit valuation, uh, which would be asking questions where people um, would, for example, give uh, answers to, to a questionnaire, and then uh, then economists would in try and infer people's value evaluation of the forest. So all these three methods have their uh, problems. For example, the, the first, the direct valuation, uh, has the problem that maybe wealthy people uh, have um, a greater willingness to pay. But economists could answer that um, there are ways of just waiting uh, waiting the answers uh, by the by the wealth of the people so that uh, uh, inequalities are not taken into account in that kind of measuring um, so there is one objection to valuing nature uh, in uh, monetary terms or economic terms um, and this example I'm pulling from uh, the book predictably irrational uh, predictably irrational uh, written by Diana Reilly. Um so in this book he describes a case study in which a kindergarten uh, or a childcare center had uh, parents that were showing up late uh, very frequently. Um, and in an, in an attempt to get the parents to uh, show up on time to pick up their children, uh, what the childcare center did is it actually uh, started fining the parents uh, for uh, being late. So uh, as the parents, uh, when the parents showed up late, then they would get a fine. And uh, what actually ended up happening in the study is that the parents actually ended up showing up on average later than before the fines were imposed. Um, and what uh, I really takes away from this is uh, the idea that what's happening here is that the uh, context of the uh, interaction or the, the, the context has changed basically and the parents are thinking in economic terms as opposed to social terms once the fine is imposed. So basically uh, the context changes and instead of thinking uh, altruistically or about what uh, their actions uh, are doing uh, to uh, other people, they then start to think just about how much money their actions are costing them. Um, and once they switch into this more economic financial frame of mind, 
then uh, they can do this sort of cost-benefit analysis, which then actually, in this case, came out in favor of showing up later, hence why the parents on average showed up later. And the fear on in the side of nature is that if we put a price on nature, people will be might be more likely to exploit it because altruistic motivations are drawn out of the equation. Right. That's a super interesting point. And I agree that this should be absolutely taken into consideration when we think about what policy options are the best. Because ideally, we would want to choose those options that you know, turn out the best in people and not the worst and make us better stewards of, of nature rather than worse stewards. Um, there is, I don't think, however, it should be a foregone conclusion that this would actually happen with pricing nature. And there have been a, a few studies um, that, you know, might, might paint a more optimistic picture, for example, in the context of animal welfare, it has been found that uh, if you have higher taxes on meat products, for example, higher prices can sometimes also lower people's cognitive dissonance that they usually have when they see a product um, and deep down they know it's harming nature or it's harming animals, but they consume it nonetheless. And in this case, people were more aware, more cognizant of, um, you know, the animal suffering that can go along with uh, bed wearing conditions and slaughtering animals for, for food. So that can also be the, the positive side that if we price nature, people might actually see um, the true value of it, and they might actually act more altruistic as a result of it. I also think that um, the point of valuing nature isn't always, or maybe isn't mainly to give people economic choices to make about nature. I think it's about, um, as a society, or for example, for maybe corporate decisions uh, to be made, made on nature in economic terms, uh, but not re not necessarily for people to, I don't know, be fined uh, if they uh, throw um, a can into a park. I, I think that's one of the reasons why people are so reluctant to think about nature in economic terms is because they are afraid to be uh, forced to make you know, economic choices about it. I think one of the things that was popping into my mind was that uh, the cost-benefit analysis maybe depends upon, um, well, I guess this whole, this whole idea of valuing nature kind of maybe depends upon our existing like property structures and social like systems of social decision-making being, you know, uh, acceptable and worthy of continuing. Um, Cause like things like, uh, for instance, let's say somebody owns a forest, right. Um, then I guess they're the one that's going to be making that they're going to be doing the, is it them that's doing the cost benefit analysis? You could also think of society as doing the cost benefit analysis and you probably get different results depending upon who is doing it. Right. So like if some, you know, barren, you know, or some, some person like owns, you know, some vast forest, you know, generations ago, right. You know, in our system, our legal system, they own that forest and they are the ones that get to make decisions about it. Right. Um, and then make, you know, if they're doing cost benefit analysis, they're presumably going to do a cost benefit analysis on the basis of their own interests. But if say society as a whole, or like the, the country or state or whatever own that forest, right. Then they might like, think that preserv preserving it or, or, you know, being less environmentally destructive or something like that would be, would be in the, the general populace, populace's interests, you know, and it would be like gentler, you know, different things like this. I completely agree. It, the private perspective of valuing things seems to exclude so, so many things, um, not least the, the interests of future generations, which is sort of at the heart of uh, what we talk about when we 
think about long-term sustainability as well. We want to preserve nature, not for ourselves, but also for the people who come after us. Um, and there's kind of also a, a reason of fairness and justice to incorporate that. But in, independent from all of these problems, maybe, yeah, how would you agree with, you know, kind of looking from a comparativist approach, uh, if this is the best that we have at the moment and it improves the situation of how we act as stewards of our Earth, um, you know, is this where it's retaining? Or should we abandon it and search for a better alternative? And what do we do in the meantime? Okay, this is really interesting uh, and and good way to end it. Uh, thank you very much to Robin, Franziska and Tider for joining me uh, for this discussion. And of course, uh, uh, thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today. Uh, follow us on Spotify or on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us. And uh, stay updated and follow us on Twitter. All, all important updates are on Twitter. It's at PhilXChange and that's just an X in the middle. Right. Thank you and see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Discuss. Bye. Bye. Okay, that's going to be a lot to cut. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>